Good Heavens, it's another episode of Good Heavens, a podcast taking a deeper look at the glory of God reflected in the stars above us. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse shows His handiwork. Do the heavens matter to us today? How can a deeper appreciation for the heavens strengthen and encourage us in our faith? Isaiah tells us that the Lord numbers all the stars and calls each one by name. If the Lord of the universe knows the name and the number of the stars, be encouraged. He too knows where you are. What finally made me into an atheist was the realization that there was no scientific reason to believe in any sort of supernatural creator. And that came with the understanding of Darwinian evolution. So it's not the same as, as religious faith, which is, which is based upon no evidence at all. The Nobel Prize for Physics was won a couple of years ago by Peter Higgs, who's Scotsman and an atheist. A few years before that, it was won by Bill Phillips in the States, who's a Christian. What separates them is not their science. They both won the Nobel Prize for Physics, after all. What separates them is their worldview. And the real conflict is between the worldview of atheism on the one side and in my case of Christian theism and the other, there are brilliant scientists on both sides of that. So the real question is not are science and religion in conflict, but what way does science point? Does it sit most comfortably with atheism, as Dawkins would suggest, or does it sit most comfortably with theism, as I would suggest? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and time itself. We have never stopped trying to figure out what it's all about. From the mathematics of the ancient Babylonians and Greeks to our present age of exploring the cosmos. We have ventured through the asteroid belt, meandered with childlike wonder upon the Martian surface, probed the mysteries of Jupiter, the king of the planets, and have been enamored with Saturn's mysterious rings. And the Lord and maker of the universe has created it all to be beautifully intelligible. He has given us our minds, our intellect, his spirit, and has invited us to explore the wonders he has made. Without God, however, the scientific endeavor would simply not be possible. There would be no minds to discover anything, no mathematics to help us calculate the vastness and wonders of the cosmic deep. As the Bible says, quote, "...great are the works of the Lord." They are studied by all who delighted them." End quote.
But for the ardent skeptic, if God does not exist, there is finally no explanation for why the universe does exist. As Oxford mathematician Dr. John Lennox notes, whom you heard at the beginning of the broadcast, quote, Why is there a universe at all? Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, there are some scientists and philosophers who think that we should not even ask this question. For them, there is no point in looking for a reason for the existence of the universe, since, according to them, there simply isn't one. Their view is that since any chain of reasoning must start somewhere, we might as well start with the existence of the universe, end quote. Lennox goes on to say, quote, Echoing Bertrand Russell, E. Triton writes, Our universe is simply one of those things which happen from time to time. Lennox observes that, quote, The kind of answer that says the universe just sprang into existence sounds about as scientific as answering the question why apples fall to the ground by saying that they just do. In addition, it would be distinctly odd, as Keith Ward points out, Quote, to think that there is a reason for everything except that most important item of all. That is, the existence of everything, the universe itself, end quote. Lennox notes that the insatiable human desire for explanation will not let that question rest, end quote. One reason for this disconnect between secular science and a biblical understanding of the created order is, as theologian Terence Nichols notes, because, quote, the ancient conviction that nature reflected and expressed God was gradually replaced by the belief that nature was an object controlled by God's will rather than a kind of sacrament that reflected and expressed God's being. One of the great changes occasioned by the scientific revolution was to conceive of nature as a kind of machine, and God as external to nature. This has led to the prevalent modern view in the West of God being marginalized from a wholly natural and secular world." End quote. On this episode of Good Heavens, we hope to offer a refreshing and thoroughly biblical understanding of creation as the ancients saw it, an expression of God's nature, of his glory, and his love. There is no science without the assumption that the world is intelligible and can be known by us. And that assumption is built upon the conviction that an intelligent, loving, and creative being, Yahweh, the great I Am, the Lord Jesus Christ, has created everything for us to discover and for his glory. As Romans 1.20 declares, quote, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse, end quote. Just take, for example, what David says in Psalm 8 of the stars. He calls them the work of God's fingers. And presently, the largest known star in the universe, UY Scuti, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.4 billion miles in diameter.
we cannot even begin to fathom that size. In fact, size really isn't a practical way to imagine these massively glorious entities. We need a whole other way of thinking about them. And that other way is fundamentally bound up in the glory of God. The heavens take us beyond quantity and measurements and introduce us to God's invisible attributes, his wisdom, his power, creativity, and his unfailing love for us in Christ Jesus. As 16th and 17th century astronomer Johannes Kepler advises astronomers in his work, Astronomia Nova, quote, I too implore my reader, when he departs from the temple and enters astronomical studies, not to forget the divine goodness conferred upon men, to the consideration of which the psalmist chiefly invites. I hope that with me he will praise and celebrate the Creator's wisdom and greatness, which I unfold for him in the more perspicacious explanations of the world's form, the investigation of causes and the detection of errors of vision. Let him not only extol the Creator's divine beneficence in his concern for the well-being of all living things, expressed in the firmness and stability of the earth, but also acknowledge his wisdom, expressed in its motion, at once so well hidden and so admirable." End quote. Our special guests on this episode of Good Heavens are David Hutchings, who studied physics with business management at the University of York and is now a high school physics teacher and a trainer of teachers with the Institute of Physics. He speaks frequently on the topic of the intersection of science and the Christian faith. Our second guest is professor of physics at Durham University, Dr. Tom McLeish. Dr. McLeish chairs the Royal Society's Education Committee and is an Anglican lay reader. He has written and spoken about issues of faith and science since he was a student himself. He is the author of several books, including Faith and Wisdom in Science 2014, The Poetry and Music of Science, Comparing Creativity in Science and Art 2019, and his co-authored 2017 book he wrote with David Hutchings, and the topic of this episode, Let There Be Science, Why God Loves Science and Science Needs God. So, Tom, we'll just start with some informal introductions um, and tell us uh, maybe a little bit about your, 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 your faith in Christ and your engagement with science in, in the UK. Yeah, surely. Um, so, I guess um, I like to say I've been a scientist since I was about two and a half. Um, and I've been a Christian, though I was aware in my childhood of uh, the Christian faith. I would say I've been a Christian since a young, my young adulthood. Mm. Um, so my professional science, scientific core vocation, as I, you know, realized, I think about, and my um, early Christian co- calling as an adult are, are, are quite similarly timed as stages in my, 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 my life. So they've always gone together. Um, uh, so it, um, and both have developed together hand in hand which has been been lovely meeting lots of wonderful people Dave and others included and um so the 
the the the science I do is physics, and it's the physics of of uh, we now call soft matter. It's literally is, is exactly what it says on the tin, and it often does come in a tin. You know, jelly and blancmange and margarine and stuff, and, and biological tissue. It turns out you might think, well, this is all biology. It's not physics. Physics is everywhere, of course. And this reminds me. Well, the reason I I fell in love with physics is because I I remember actually I remember at high school the day that I realised that the science I was really interested in was the stuff people called physics. And it was that that away round. And I think it's because it's fundamental. It, it, I've always wanted to get to the bottom of things, the root of the tree, the, the, the most basic uh, conception of understanding the world. And it's always been just a joy to me that it's possible to understand the world at its at a really deep level, as well as being overjoyed by um, astronomy. I had a telescope when I was little, and my grandmother uh, gave me a microscope when I was little, an old microscope that belonged to her grandfather. She was a bit of a naturalist wow. and, and also a preacher at her local church. So I saw in my grandmother how serious Christian faith and science could go together. We never talked about that, but she demonstrated in her person they could go together. Mm-hmm. I could talk forever, and I see you don't want me to talk forever, but I'll, I'll just say one more thing, which is that. Um, from very early on in my professional Christian life and my professional scientific vocation, people would ask me, both inside and outside the church, how do you reconcile your science and your Christian faith? Mm. Honestly, I didn't know where they were coming from. Because for me, the two have always gone absolutely hand in hand. And uh, uh, it took me a long time to work out what on earth they thought the problem was. Um, Anyway, uh, and... uh, so I'll shut up. That probably helps you give a bit of a background. Yeah, yeah. Well, you describe something that is uniquely—I don't know if it's if it's Westernized. If you say it's a, a fruit of Western culture, or or maybe the Copernican principle or something. But as you've been raised in childhood to believe they go together, I think we're dealing with a lot of people today that have been raised to think that that they are separate. And so you're, you're, you're really, you, it's, it's two different universes, really. You're, you're coming at it from a completely, one person's on the moon. What do you mean there's trees? I've never seen trees before. What you're trying to explain trees to somebody who's lived on the moon all their life. So that's, that's really interesting, Tom. It's wonderful to hear that. Um, I didn't grow up as a Christian and uh, I came to Christ as an adult. So I've had to learn the synthesis, but once you, so I learned what you've learned all your life in, in 27 years as an adult and found it extraordinarily satisfying and and wonderful and uh, never ending. You're always looking for things. You're always trying to find things. But I loved how you and uh, David were able to, in the book, synthesize so well how Christianity and science go together. You cover a lot of territory, David, um, You but you, you synthesize it so well. You think, well, he's talking about theology here for a second. Wait, I thought we were talking about science and and you know, James Clark Maxwell and light particles and photons. Now you're talking about love and the Trinity and Jesus. What, what, what's going on? So uh, David, with that, I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit about uh, yourself and your background. You, this is the second time you've been on our podcast. So welcome back. Uh, a little brief bio, and then uh, we'll just start right in with, uh, with this book. Sure. Uh, my name is David Hutchings. I'm a physics teacher. I teach 14 to 18 year olds and um so that in England, bless your soul yeah yeah <laughs> i'm just about holding it together at the minute we, we've switched um 
to what's called blended learning, which means that sometimes I'm in the strange situation of teaching a lab full of students um, and a couple of laptops uh, of students who are at home but Mm. have Zoomed into the classroom. What a challenge. Uh, So uh, that is very surreal. Sometimes I Mm. feel like I'm living 100 years in the future. Um, Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I'm a Christian as well. I have been uh, since I was in primary school or grade school, I think uh, you'd say, in the the US. And um, uh, I bumped into Tom at a lecture given by Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who uh, is an uh, astronomer and astrophysicist. Um, She was giving a talk on black holes and white holes. So there you go, a rather unusual topic. Yes. And then at the after party, uh, and yes, there there really was an after party, even though um, it was a physics lecture. Uh, this, physicists this... go to parties? <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Oh, physicists know how to party, believe me. <laughs> oh, um, smashing. Good time, I bet it was. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so God brought you guys together at an after yeah, party. That brought us together. Tom, Tom came bounding over to me with all the youthful grace that he has and told me that he had written a book called Faith and Wisdom in Science. Uh, yes. Now, this is the book behind the book. Dan. Okay. Did you know there was a book behind it? No, well, now I do, and you just added to my Amazon list. I'm going to have to add that one. You must. It's dead cheap on Amazon. Faith and Wisdom in Science, so less than $10 will be yours. So God brought you together like two particles at the Large Hadron Collider, and you smashed together, and you put your heads together, and then bang, you discovered the Higgs boson, or at least something close to it. You you came up with something else. Yes, the real brain power is is Tom's. Um, He wrote Faith and Wisdom in Science, and... Uh, it's a kind of incredible study of the interweaving of theology and science. And in fact, I mean, Tom will explain this a little bit later, but what it really is, is a theology of science. So how should we be thinking about science in the light of the teaching of the Bible? Mm. And um, and he approached me and said that there was a desire uh, for uh, from a publisher to have a second version of the same argument that was aimed at the layman, the scientific layperson um, yeah. and uh, the high school student. So uh, we collaborated and came up with Let There Be Science, which introduces the ideas. And so um, uh, sort of, I do it through a medium of, of trying to tell stories. So each chapter starts yes. with a story um, and then pulls in one of the more profound points from Tom's original text. But what what the thrust of the book is, is to look at all of those data points where there is some deep relationship between Christian theology and the, mm. and the everyday experience of the scientist. Mm. Um, and it is actually, I think, surprising to a lot of people who haven't sat down and really thought about it, how deep those links are. Um, right. Yeah. So I, mean, I guess we can talk through what some of those um, yeah. well, some I of those start, meeting points are. Sure. I'd like to start with something that was in the back of the book, actually, because I think uh, this struck me as something that we all have to, that we all think, I think we all have to kind of overcome. Um, you're describing different uh, perspectives of, of cultural impressions, I would call them, of science. The things that you hear from people about, well, why aren't you interested in science? Well, because of this and that and this and that. 
And uh, one of them I found to be resonating with, I think, a lot of people that I've talked to because um, I think, uh, well, David, you know, but uh, Tom, I, I co-edited a book about the cosmos with uh, Christian philosopher Paul Gould last year. So I've done a lot of research in the science and theology area myself. And I was run into this a lot. Uh, science, the odd family member. You guys say too often we have seen science is presented as a distant and almost mysterious process carried out by a small number of super intelligent people behind closed doors. Evidence and data we are led to believe are handled with machine-like precision. New facts and theories emerge in pristine condition. Nothing ever goes wrong. Scientists know exactly what they are doing. And they march ever onwards doing their odd and complicated but highly effective thing. And I think that is the perception a lot of us have about science, uh, especially in the United States, a lot of university-driven science departments looking for grants and research things, as you were talking about earlier, Tom. Um, But uh, you guys blow that perception out of the water with this book. You really show that science is more like a family, right? Uh, You got weird cousins, strange uncles, a bizarre aunt talking about black holes and white holes. And you got all kinds of different personalities and people. But one of the things that you brought up in the book that I think really helped to helps to dispel this is this idea of love. I love science. I, I, I love this. I love what I do. I have this passion. I have this, this uh, drive to do this. So it's not a dry, unemotional, detached, data-driven, Spock-like enterprise. This is highly imbued with passion and love and relationships. Do you want to expand on that, Tom? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I had another word to that list, which is imagination. Yes, um, but they will also know. I mean, another. Uh, in fact, there's a there's another book. There's a book after the book. We, uh, but later, when I've, I because just as I got exercised and annoyed, but saddened really by by people asking whatever you know, surely science and Christian faith have nothing to do with each other. In fact, are antagonistic. Well, no, no, no. Whatever gave you that idea? I've also um, had people, but these uh, school school kids say, um, you know. Um, I'm not interested in science because there's no creativity or no imagination. Mm. And that's not true either. Um, the deepest imagination, because we don't read, we can't just read the world as it were, just like a book. I know it's, it's a, a bit of an analogy that's, that's gone down actually the church for years and years that God wrote two books. The second book is, is the book of nature. The first book of course, is the book of scripture. Um, and to some extent, Stand that's true, but it's a dangerous metaphor because we can't just read the laws of nature or the deep structure of nature off of its surface like a book. We've we see nature in its complex, um, puzzling uh, reality all the time. What's going on behind? Like, you know, why does the apple fall off the tree? Um, you know, Newton had to exercise its enormous imaginative leap of this force of the distance called gravity, which drops off as the square of the distance, which gives you this beautiful geometric structure that fills the solar system. Um, and then Einstein, after, after him, took gravity on the next level and showed how um, you can understand how gravity came, if you think of the way matter curving space like a sort of four-dimensional membrane. This requires the most extraordinary imagination, hmm. which is inspired what you see but it's not defined or dictated by what you see mm. um so so that too i think is is something that that um we need to work on the other thing to say is actually 
let me say now, you don't have to be all that bright to be a scientist. It's one of these ordinary things that anyone right. can do. Right. Um, almost, yeah, really anyone. And, and the trouble is we get told these all bunch of lies about science. One big lie is that it's antagonistic Christian faith. You know, it's, a, it's a lie. But the other lie is you've got to be super weird and geeky and brilliant to do it. No. All sorts of people, odds and sods, have fun doing, doing science and making real real right. progress. So there's a couple of honest Right. <laughs> well, I did a, uh, I did a uh, Texas, domesticated Texas version of science last night. I know before I turned on the microphone, I was talking about making a recipe. I take all my condiments that I have left over in the fridge and try to make something of them so I don't throw them out. And sometimes it's a flop and sometimes it worked really well. And the other night, last night, it worked out really well. Um, but that's, that's kind of what you guys are talking about. Uh, I like the example of the gentleman who was introducing the idea of, uh, of uh, folding proteins in a video game uh, and how people came up with that uh, through, through the participation of, of people and the creativity that uh, is inherent in all of us. And that's the same kind of thing that I noticed with uh, some astronomy projects now that uh, there's, there's not enough scientists to go through the data. And so they've enlisted the help of people online. You can go online and participate. Galaxy Zoo. Isn't yeah. that fun? And yeah. it's, it's really a, a fun thing. So if nature is a book, well, well, maybe we should modify it and say it's something like a choose-your-own-adventure book or something like mm. that, where yeah. The, yeah. the mysteries continue to unfold as you choose to pursue your particular... And now, here's the thought. A little bit of a theological history thought that has entailed, which is bang on this theme, um, which, which is this... And it has to do with the, the Reformation, um, which I think, you know, let's, let's be honest, the, the Reformation gave benefits, not just to the Protestant church, but the Catholic church as well. It was, it was as the early reformers ever always hoped, a Reformation of the Catholic church, as well as um, these, these, these new, new churches. And we hope that Jesus' prayer that will be one in the future might, might be answered in, in some future years. But that said, one thing the Reformation did, which was super precious, was to shake up the church a bit and make us it help us to rediscover what the early Christians knew to only well, really well is that God's word is something for all for us all to read right it's a daily practice mm -hmm. uh, meditating on your law that all this sort of stuff um, and any and anyone does it and God can speak to anyone uh, you know that's all held within and tensioned within within the church so that good things emerge and so forth well look if the, the Reformation helped us to understand God's first book in that way. What does it what does it say about God's second book? If God, if we can take nature as the second book that, that God read, um, and to some extent I think we can, then what it says is that rather than this book being read and interpreted by a tiny priesthood uh, who then dictates to the masses in mm -hmm. the pews what they should believe about nature no what it says is that this is a book which all can read nature is something which can be re refreshing and uh, thought-provoking yeah. and an arena for fun for all of us and you know what at that in the 17th century following the reformation among the same among the same christians who immediately followed in the tradition of the uh, Reformation, like Robert Boyle, uh, who got the 17th century early early science science going, uh, um, experimental science going, they were also saying everyone can do this. Anyone can do the equivalents of galaxies do, or what you just explained, and it, um, and have a little diary with them, and and can contribute to science. Now, unfortunately, that got sort of lost because science got super professionalised, mm. and I have to say the Royal Society, which I'm. A, fellow now is very much to blame with, uh, about about this and we lost 
this, uh, it's almost as if in science the Counter-Reformation won. And we forgot that the Book of Nature is also written by God for yeah. everyone. Right, to look at right. with love as he does. So, right. Yeah. Well, it, it, it always strikes me that, uh, you know, during the Counter-Reformation is when you have Johannes Kepler, Kepler and Tycho Brahe, uh, basically reforming our concept of the heavens. I mean, th- those are two men that had a foot in both worlds, the old uh, Copernican world, or not the, the pre-Copernican world, and then the new sort of uh, heliocentric world. And they, you know, uh, Johannes, faithful to Christ as a Lutheran. Um, it's amazing. We just did a podcast on his life. Uh, but, oh, Kepler, wonderful. Yeah, you know, oh my goodness. Um, and and, and he, ref- he kind of reformed between he and Bra, and then, of course, uh, Galileo and, and, and later... Um, uh, Newton, um, uh, they kind of reformed our concept of the heavens, uh, you know, with the, the elliptical orbits that uh, came out of all of that uh, chaos. Science itself, to flourish, needs the right philosophical ground to grow on. Um, and uh, and that, that, that is something that's been completely lost, I think, to a lot of modern scientists. Um, there, there are a, a lot of implicit assumptions that, that sit around... Um, and underneath science without them it wouldn't make any sense to even try and do anything Uh, and so some of them i mean some examples would be um as basic as why would you even expect to be able to discover anything (laughs) i I have this this pound or couple of pounds or whatever it is of meat in my skull why why should i have any expectation that anything that's happening in there is going to correspond to to the universe that I'm in. Why should there be any resonance between the way that I think and the way that the universe works? You know, that, that if there isn't any resonance, science is a completely hopeless enterprise. And we were talking about Kepler. He says, um, he calls the world a theatre. He says the theatre of the world is ordered with such signs that it can be investigated and understood. And he says, the reason I can do that is that this mind that I've got is a likeness of the mind that made this universe that it's that I've been put into. Right, right. It was a, two pieces that were meant, uh, intended to go together. Um, yeah. I like what you both say on 166 of the book. You're quoting the Oxford Handbook of Philosophical Theology. Uh, And what you do here in quoting this, you quote, uh, uh, of course, Newton, um, Michael Faraday, and uh, James Clerk Maxwell. And you note that uh, the the quote notes that uh, their discoveries were birthed in the soil, the good soil of Christian faith, uh, that these discoveries were directly linked to these men's belief in an intelligible, not only an intelligible universe, but because of their belief in God's omnipresence, his omniscience, and his, uh, above all, his love and his mercy. But you don't have Maxwell's field equations, as this quote says. Uh, they were modeled on his views concerning the relationships within the Trinity. And then uh, it goes on to say that uh, contemporary cosmic fine-tuning cases cannot be dismissed as easily as some would like. And so you guys do a great job of of really showing how Christianity flourished in the the greenhouse, if you will, of uh, of contemporary of of Christian faith, and that without it, it does sort of take on a sterile, austere uh, kind of guesswork that uh, we have no reason to expect to find things. But yet, 
would you both agree that uh, modern science proceeds along the lines that, you know, when we, we make a theory, we're assuming that we're going to be able to find data. We don't send up very expensive telescopes without an assumption they're going to be able to pull down something that's legible, right? And, and so this legibility, uh, modern science cannot finally explain, would you say? Well, I think you can go even further than that. I think you can say um, that the reason we do any experiments and any data gathering at all is that we don't know what the answers are going to be in advance, right? Um, and uh, what we can't do is sit in some ivory tower and figure out by pure logic alone what the universe is going to be like. And mm. that, that actually has its fruition in a Christian idea too, which is that God freely created the universe mm. by his own will. He wasn't constrained um, by any exterior uh, requirements, and he didn't make it out of pre-existing material that meant that you know, he only had a number of options available to him. Um, the, 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 the world we live in is the world that God wanted to make. And, it, and it's fascinating. If you go back to the 13th century, um, there's quite a row brewing there in those times about Aristotle. You have Aristotle absorbed into um, the universities and at the early universities, and, um, and Aquinas is trying to merge Aristotle with Christian theology. Mm-hmm. And Aristotle is the, is the order of the day, really. But... There are some bits that don't quite fit. You know, Aristotle, for example, uh, says, oh, the universe is eternal in both directions. And and he makes certain statements about the soul and so on. And at one point, um, you hit this kind of, the tension is unbearable between the two. And you have this strange event in 1277 in Paris, where some of the clergy say, right, that's it. We're going to make a, a list of statements that nobody's allowed to hold anymore right they're kind of banned statements so notice yeah. the condemnations yeah. Yeah. of of 12 can't teach them. you can hold them they can't dictate what's in the mind you can't teach no, them. That's true true but what's quite interesting is that they say things like um you cannot say that god hasn't made multiple worlds hmm. you cannot say that god can't create multiple dimensions you cannot say that God couldn't have done this, that, or the other. And so far from closing down uh, the options about the world, what they actually do is they say, God, because he's omnipotent and he created freely, might have done any of these things. Mm. And, and the, uh, the amazing historian of science, Edward Grant, who's kind of a giant in the field, he says that the effect of this was to create a kind of medieval game of let's pretend, where... The great thinkers of the day said, all right, well, if God could do any of these things, let's start imagining that he did them and work out the logical consequences of them. In fact, there's someone who did just that about about a, li- a single lifetime before that 1277, which I, I cannot resist but directing you to. So on page 36, okay. uh, we, we refer to one Robert Grosstest, or Bob Bighead, as he'd be called. That's how you translate it these days. <laughs> An extraordinary thinker. So, little parenthesis here. One of the many, one of the many, you know, untruths that's circulating um, 
is, is the joint untruth, firstly, that there was no, nothing we could remotely call science before the 17th century, and also that the medieval church were, you know, resolutely repressed as heresy, all new scientific thinking, if not burnt you at the stake, if you dare to suggest, you know, there are other universes. Well, nothing, this is, or they all taught the earth was flat, even worse. Yeah. Uh, nothing could be more, nothing could be more ridiculously wrong. And it turns out, this is, by the way, one of the original conspiracy theories. You can trace it down to a couple of gentlemen in the 19th century who made all this stuff up yeah. um, uh, about, about the conflict of science and religion that was never true. So Robert Grostest um, was bishop, became Bishop of Lincoln, but he was teaching his Franciscan students at Oxford in the 1220s. And I'm fascinated by this guy because he's such a genius. Took one of these Aristotelian teachings... Um, namely the one that they said the universe had always been forever and ever uh, in the past and said, well, actually, you know, as a Christian, um, I believe in creation. God made this universe. The Bible tells us that God made the universe. Now, interestingly, because Grostes knew his Bible thoroughly and properly and knew all the creation stories in it, he couldn't, he, he knew full well that the Bible doesn't give scientific answers to yeah. exactly what happened in creation, but right. he did know that the universe started. So what he says is, we have to use our science to work out how, um, and, and, and because we know light um, is fundamental to the way God is and loves yes. and creates and everything, let's suppose this. So he had in 1225, the original Big Bang theory of the universe, which starts with a point of light, expands in a sphere. And I and a group of scientists and medieval Latin scholars together studied this. And we blew our minds apart over it and even wrote computer programs along the lines of Gross' 1224 theory. But I mean, that just illustrates and grounds what David just said, that in the 13th century, that, as, you know, some people would just say it's the Dark Ages. Well, no, what's going on? Are Christians coming across pagan and, and Greek and, and in fact Arabic and Islamic thought as well and saying, well, this isn't just bad because it wasn't invented by a Christian. God, God is generous and gracious. Let's see what it is we can take from it that's good mm. and uh, uh, work out our faith in fear and trembling by working out how the universe was made. Right. So it's like, uh, it's like, it's like uh, Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17. We're going to take some uh, pagan science, if you will. And uh, we're going to find out what is redemptive about it. Okay, you people have this poem about Zeus, but let me tell you, you have this uh, statue to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you about particles and, and photons and, and, uh, and all this stuff. Uh, it, it is said that gravity is this, this, and that, but, but, but you know, so it's like we're taking, um, we're taking from the philosophers and the pagans. I mean, this is, this is medieval Christendom. I mean, we have Arabic science and mathematics because the monks were, were in their tiny little hamlets uh, as Europe was being overrun, and they're copying all of this material, and they're preserving all of this material. And we, we have their, the copy editors of these, of these monks, of these monasteries, to thank for the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and to have all these ancient texts, and to be able to take their concepts and to, to, to uh, baptize them. I think is is what C.S. Lewis would have said: baptizing pagans. And um, and so let me let me ask you both. Um, I have a scripture that your book brought to mind 
at many a turn, I mean, you guys, you guys are very thorough. I was very impressed with the amount of scripture that you were able to lay in there in between these scientific concepts, but, uh, another bit of a mission. It was great. You guys really, it wasn't like, uh, well, here's, here's a science concept. Here's a Bible verse. It was like, here's how we weaves together. Um, Ecclesiastes three, of course, the, the preacher Koheleth, uh, he is kind of lamenting, you know, as, as Ecclesiastes is, it's a kind of lament and a conclusion with fear God and keep his commandments. But early on, he says, God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, ours, so, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from beginning to end. And I think uh, in one chapter, David, you guys talk about the scientists who died, who didn't get to see what they were looking for come to pass. Uh, and it reminded me of Hebrews uh, 11, 11 um, 13, I think, yeah. where it's like they all died in faith. You know? yeah. they were, what you guys were saying is that there's this drive in science, uh, even though maybe in their lifetime, they're not going to see the results of their fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as Newton said, everybody's standing on the shoulders of giants. And so there's this pursuit in science, even though maybe not in my lifetime, like Hawking or Einstein would live to see the fulfillment of their theories. They, they intuitively know that there is an answer to this question and it is worth pursuing, right? Yeah, if you look in the... I mean, Tom is a, is a fellow of the Royal Society. I was speaking to uh, a pretty prestigious scientist a while back and they said that those are the only three letters they would ever actually bother putting after their name. Nothing <laughs> else they, award, they were awarded they would, they would include. But if they got FRS, bam, it would be on everything. I mean, they would oh. be stickering everything with it. But the Royal Society, when it was founded, one of the um, one of the key people who was in and around that was uh, Francis Bacon, and Francis Bacon says, "Look," uh, and he wasn't the only one to believe this. This was Robert Hooke, a whole bunch of you know really important folk in the early days, in the early days of the Royal Society. Um, they say when God first made Adam. And when God first made Eve, they had a complete and full and functional relationship with nature. Mm. They were placed in the garden Mm. and they had a full working knowledge of everything around them. Yeah. Um, When when Robert Hooke famously uh, starts using a microscope and he teaches himself to draw and releases this incredible book called Micrographia, which becomes this bestseller, and, and you still see pictures of it everywhere now. Um, he says, and he's, he's, he's drawing pictures of fleas and flies and things like this that no one had seen because, mm. you know, now I've got this mic- He says, Adam would have been able to see all this detail without a microscope. Huh. <laughs> that's what, that's wow. what he says. Now, <laughs> now, they had this pervasive belief that one of the consequences of the fall was a loss of proper relationship with nature. Yeah, you talk about the divisions in the book that Francis Schaeffer mentioned, being divided, uh, multiple divisions. That's right. And so the fall wasn't just a fall from morality. It wasn't just a fall from our relationship with God. It wasn't just a fall uh, in terms of our relationships with each other. It was also a fall... uh, with our relationship with, with nature. And mm. Francis Bacon actually writes, um, in the same way that there are other disciplines and activities that can bring about reconciliation to the, to the, in those other relationships, 
in our relationship with God and in our relationship with our fellow man and, mm-hmm. and so on. He says science will bring about a reconciliation of our relationship with nature. Wow. The relationship we're supposed to have with nature. Yeah. And, you know, they're all in on this. And that's what gives this sense of mission. That's how people can keep ploughing on. That's mm. how in the 1800s, Robert Brown is is uh, comes across what we now call Brownian motion of pollen grains jumping around in water. Yeah. And chased down the explanation his whole life. So and not not see it. He died before he saw it. But right. it's about a reconciliation with nature because God wants us to be reconciled across the board with him, with each other, and with the world that when he created, he called good. So that's amazing, David, because uh, really when a Stephen Hawking or an Albert Einstein or or someone is pursuing a theory, a deeper theory, really you're suggesting that they are sort of in some way showing forth this idea, this very Christian idea of redemption, reconciliation, and unification. And so all of these pieces that we find in physics, Tom, as you say, you know, the studying the, the particles and the pieces and all the different various, uh, you know, quantities and constants of, of fine tuning that, that we have all these pieces and it's, it's like something has been fractured, but we know intuitively that there is unity to be found despite the fact that we are piecemealing things together and we don't have the bigger picture. We know the bigger picture. And so it's like the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 that, okay, we can't see the whole thing, but we are pursuing uh, a city whose builder and maker is God. We are after that, that final unification of, of God and man uh, of creation of recreation. And so science turns out to be a kind of a, a kind of a, a mirror redemptive pursuit uh of well, part of the big i would say it's it's actually part of the whole redemptive pursuit don't forget that the biblical vision the real biblical vision for the future is not just the individual salvation of a bunch of souls god's mm. vision is much bigger than that mm. think of daniel think of the vision to revelation think mm. of what jesus taught about the last days think about where we're going it's the whole think about isaiah late isaiah 60 60 66 think about um the vision of, of god's people throughout inspired of the new heavens and the new earth mm. that's where we're going we're going to a resurrected new heavens and a new earth um it, with which all be reconciled to God, be reconciled to each other, and be reconciled to the world. And no longer will our relation with nature be um, that of thorns, briars, pain of childbirth, all the consequences of the fall like that. So actually, if you think, if you read the Bible uh, honestly, without a sort of very late modern Puritan filter, um, you realise that God's project of salvation and healing is a universal cosmic one. Mm. Um, and and that we are why he would do this but we are you know we are chosen he chooses us as his people as his servants um to work with him uh yet filled with the spirit and so for every task of reconciliation that's required he through his spirit gives gifts so you know as david said an example is um uh is is there such a thing as as disease um it, which you could think of as, as a, a lack of a broken relationship with our own bodies. Well, we have a gift. It's called medicine. 
Um, and also, actually, we have maybe extra gifts of, of, of healing too. But we, the point is, they're all gifts that help us to heal. We're, we're ignorant. We don't know how to live. Well, we give us, you know, gives us people gifts of education and teaching. Mm. He gives parents gifts of nurture. He gives, you know, uh, we need to eat. We get hungry. We get we, the farmers get gifts of, of growing food and so forth. So all our gifts are to a purpose, and that purpose is to is 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 effectively to heal and meet need. So look. Do you see how science begins in this story to make sense? Mm. Why would these great Christian believing people, like Copernicus, you mentioned, thought that science was a source of worship? Kepler was thinking God's thoughts after him. And uh, Maxwell, Maxwell too, um, gazing at the universe with this sort of love in a story that maybe I don't get to see the end of, Mm. but I'm part of this chapter. And it's a story of being reconciled to the universe, which we, you know, we're, we're in fear and ignorance of now, but, but Mm. science help us overcome that ignorance Mm. and to some extent that fear Mm. and then hope over the problem of harm because we harm nature as much as nature harms. So it's his life. Right. Well, and it's interesting too, because the pre Copernican, medieval cosmos was very life affording. I mean, everything in the medieval cosmos had a place. And uh, it was, I guess, for lack of a better word, cozy, if you will, you know, everything in the spheres and you have Dante uh, and Beatrice going up to the Imperium. It's clear when you read medieval texts and going right back at least to first century BC, um, that people knew even this medieval cozy world was so huge that if you could go up to the stars, Earth would be an almost invisible dot. Modern cosmology today seems to enhance this antagonism uh, about our place in the cosmos. I mean, um, this this idea that humanity is inconsequential and insignificant, um, that we don't matter, we're a thin film, as Carl Sagan said, we, uh, and so many other philosophers and atheists over the last century or so, especially Bertrand Russell, um, we're just in accidental collocations of atoms. Um, this despair, and I see, I think you see it in the pandemic too, uh, globally, that uh, this modern concept that science is going to save us, um, but that, that I'm also, the story that we're being told, the story, you guys emphasize this so much in the book, the story we're being told is, is impacting how we view ourselves, not just nature. But if, if nature is uncaused, you know, accidental uh, and purposeless, no, no teleological reality to it, uh, then what am I? You know, if, if it's all just accidental detritus from a sun exploding, how do I, how do I, so I, I see what you're saying that, that, that this task of science for the Christian is to, to tell a better story. It's not just to find better data. It, it's, and it's, when, when, when we say story, we're not just saying like fairy tale or myth, telling the true story telling the gospel story mm-hmm. uh, that, that, it, that as your book says, and it, it, it's so simple, it's so wonderful, um, the, the need to interweave uh, the, the interconnectedness of, of gospel truth and scientific inquiry uh, that tells the right story, right? Yeah, I think it's easy to look back and mock or to look back and think, oh, you know, Look how naive people were. We're cleverer now. And and every generation has done that. Mm. Um, you know, one of the first things you do when you uh, become a cultural elite is to go a couple of generations back and say how stupid the people that came before you were. Mm. Um, and this idea of, of the medieval um, cosmos 
giving a meaning or a purpose to everything. Um, you know, some people do look back on that and they just make fun of it. They say, oh, you know, isn't it silly that um, they used to think that walnuts uh, looked like brains and that that was, that was God's clue that walnuts should be used to treat headaches because, you know, God has designed everything to look exactly like what it was meant for, you know, the doctrine of signatures. But it's way too simplistic. Like, that's just way too simplistic. First of all, that is actually quite a logical system, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, there's a lot of logic that lies behind that. Right. You've, you've thought to yourself, okay, I'm looking at nature and I'm making observations about nature and I have a worldview that is internally consistent, right? Um, and who knows? I mean, the placebo effect may have been very, very effective um, when everybody's buying into it. Yeah. But um, actually, there's there is a reality to the fact that God has put into nature clues about himself. That's right. Yes, sure, we might not say the same thing exactly and say that walnuts you know, look like brains, so we should use them for brains. But what we can say is um, there are signs in the world around us that tell us about God. I mean, Romans, right. Romans chapter 1, um, and Paul says... You know, what can be known about God, his, his divine qualities and his invisible nature can be discerned from what has been made. Right. Right. And the stories that uh, the stories that Jesus tells about the kingdom, yeah. the kingdom of heaven is like uh, uh, wheat, fish, birds, flowers, uh, the sky. Uh, he's using metaphors from nature all the time. And let me let me give you a way to think about this. So um, Jesus we're told in scripture was slain before the creation of the world right in other words before god even made the world there was this redemption plan in place jesus was going to become Mm. a human being live a life on earth talk to us about who he was and who his father was and how to be reconciled that was all planned before the creation of the world right and one of the things that jesus says is i am the good shepherd now, I don't think, because it would make God very small, to say Jesus was just looking around himself and pulling an example out of nowhere, Mm-mm. right? Just spontaneously. No, 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 no. Think about it the other way around. The, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are saying we're going to create, and then we're going to reveal ourselves. How do we reveal wh- who we are, what we are like, our character, Right? And one of the facets of Jesus' character is that he's like a good shepherd. So what does the Godhead do? Make sheep. Create sheep. <laughs> right? Yes. And then and then create the role of shepherd. Right. And then Jesus comes in and says, I'm like a good shepherd. He wasn't responding to the fact that they were shepherds and thinking, oh, that's a kind of half analogy that might, I might get away with. Yeah. It was the other way around. Right. Sheep were created by God to teach us what Jesus is like. That's right. right? That's right. Um, and, uh, and Kepler, you know, Kepler, his, his writings are, are interwoven, we use that word a lot, with his, his mystical Christian, Christian faith. Yes, right? yes, All the way through. yes, yes. And he is expecting to get to know God by studying nature. Wow. To know more. Uh, so is Maxwell, right? Maxwell even says, I think that, any Christian 
who has been blessed with the intellect to do so should do science in order to get to know Christ. Right, right. He actually says that. Right, right. right. Um, and so we discover, and, and so one, one example that you've mentioned is the size of the cosmos, right? Mm. I mean, it's huge. So what does that tell us about our God? And I think uh, that that brings up another analogy that I read. This is very colloquial, but I think it's it's kind of fun. You know, so the Milky Way, right? It comes from the, the, the Greek word uh, gala for milk, Gallic, gala. I'm not sure what the Greek is there, but uh, so it's Milky Way. And I was thinking the other day, I says, uh, this is just off the top of my head. I'm like, okay, the universe is filled with galaxies, right? Galic. Gala is the fundamental thing you find when you point a telescope out there, stars and collections of stars. Gala, milk is out there everywhere. So I'm like, okay, we got milk in the cosmos. Where's the honey? And I was just thinking that to myself. I'm like, milk and honey, a, a cosmos flowing with milk and honey. Why not? Well, I, I found a paper online in my, all my weird searching that there's actually a peer-reviewed published paper that is suggesting that the universe is structured like a honeycomb. <laughs> it's called the cosmic web. Yeah, the, you know. Um, and I, colleagues at Durham computed the, compute, used to compute this structure. Right, right. It's the best kind of, I know for a lot of things, structurally, honeycombs, that uh, hexagonal shape is a really good structure for things. Uh, of course, I'm not a scientist, but I say all that to say that that's kind of what the spirit of what you're saying in the book uh, that there's this creativity that if you if you know Jesus and you know God, he can lead you on uh, to further discoveries uh, about what he has created uh, for the sheer delight of discovering things, but not only about nature, but ultimately about who Jesus is as we discover more things about nature. Uh, it was the poet uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge who uh, who went to a, would go to chemistry lectures to get more metaphors. Uh, to, for his for his poetry because of uh, it just helped him understand yeah. God better, yeah. um, and it was Coleridge as well, Coleridge as well, who um, for whom the 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 uh, the meeting of God at the burning bush yes. was the, the ultimate moment, and who called us. Coleridge absolutely got it. He said, "Insofar as Yahweh is the great I am, he wants us to be little I am." Yeah, that because we're made in his image can create in our own small way like him and gaze on and perceive and look into the universe with love and with his mind mm. like little I am's when we are in a proper relationship to the big I am. He's glorious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Coleridge is spot on. I, uh, I, I just interviewed uh, Malcolm Gite about Coleridge. Oh, well, there you go. That's what I got, That's what I got that from. Yeah. <laughs> well, I read, I read Malcolm's book in grad school, Faith, Hope, and Poetry. And yeah. so he was gracious oh. enough to spend time with me talking about that. But yeah, Coleridge and light and the I am and the imagination is a wonderful uh, place to go. But, but it, it does speak to the idea that, that poetry has something to say about the universe, a very legitimate expression. But while we're on poetry, can we talk about the book of Job? This is the best poetry in the Hebrew Bible. My next question was that because uh, I had a Hebrew professor in seminary say that the book of the Hebrew and the book of Job is some of the most difficult to translate. And a lot of the words, we just leave Hebrew words like Leviathan and behemoth are Hebrew words because we don't have an English equivalent. And uh, in the opening of Job, when he's talking about his own trials and tribulations, he uses like six or seven different words for darkness in describing what he's going through. And it's very, as you say, Tom, it's very beautiful enigmatic, deep, rich, poetic Hebrew. Absolutely. So I, I, I remember when, when, I th- when I was thinking, gosh, you know, 
I think that the because science is so godly and such a calling, I think although the word science is is the label for for its current manifestation, I think this idea of this questing search into the universe must be far older than this. I knew the in fact I knew the ancient Greeks had had, had got things going, um, and I still remember the day I first read Job. 38 42 god's answer mm. to job i was you know, a young christian reading through the bible all of it you know obviously one has to do this and it's, you you get some surprises boy you get some surprises on the way and then when i got to this succulent fabulous incredible you know like cosmic tour when when job you know suddenly falls quiet he's had enough complaints and god says okay you're complaining about the wild and chaotic nature and chaotic universe and the chaotic chaos of justice and the chaos of the world let me show you were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Mm. Says he, talking from the whirlwind. And he shows Job the ice and the snow and the clouds and the Pleiades. And he said, do you know how the Pleiades are formed? Do you know how the, where the ice comes from? Do you know? And this is glorious poem where every verse is a question. That's its form. Mm. There aren't many poems made of questions, but this is one of the greatest major poems ever lived. And of course, the, the, the reason that I ah, took my breath, I still remember, I can't believe what I'm reading. Is that by that stage, I had been a scientist long enough to know that although at school we tell kids and we should stop doing this, that, you know, to be a good scientist, all that matters, you come up with the right answer. Yeah, that's useless. That's not how science works. How you discover things is not by is is by coming up with the right question Mm. that. The imaginative leap is the key question that unlocks the, right. the, the, the journey of understanding. And so here's God asking Job, why are the stars of the Pleiades clustered together, but the stars of Orion are further apart? Now, that's not a whimsical nonsense question. Yeah. That's a real question. Every single one of these questions is a real science question. Yeah. Now, that sounds a bit anachronistic, but it is. Now, People have tended to think, oh, yeah, God's just trying to make Job realise how stupid he is. I'm sorry. Jews don't do that. The Hebrew tradition never uses questions as put-downs. They use Jesus, did Jesus ever ask a question of his disciples to make them look stupid? No, they did not. He did not. Who do people say that I am? You know, uh, (laughs) these are educational questions. Um, the Hebrew tradition, bless, you know, Jews have really got this right. They know how to ask questions. So this is like a, a second tributary. If, if, if ancient Greek science and, and Aristotle and Plato and Thucydides and, the, and, and um, uh, Heraclitus and, uh, uh, and, and Thales is one tributary that we draw on and baptize, then my goodness, the Hebrew Bible in its nature poetry is another one. Right. And, and there you go. And it's if you needed you needed a, a proof a, a, a proof text for this. There are many. The first uh, that the final answer to this long-standing question that generations and generations passed the great science question of all the ages is how do rainbows work. The final answer to the gym of how rain, raindrops diffract rain was given of a, as a Benedictine monk in 1308. His name is Dietrich of Freiburg, and when he wrote his paper up, he said. You know what set me on to this question? It was God's question to Job. Do you know how the light diffuses in the clouds? Ah, there you go. Wow, wow. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, Tom. I mean, it's fascinating, not just interesting. It's absolutely soul-stirring, and you express it well. That's Those are my favorite books in the Bible. I mean, Job is all the way through. 
But God's answer to suffering seems to be an extended Socratic dialogue about creation. That seems to yeah. be the, and so here we are looking for these complicated philosophical theodicies and trying to explain God's motives yeah. in nature. And God says, well, let me give you a commentary on creation. Yeah. If you look at Job's complaint, it's actually a double one. Mm. Um, Job is complain, complaining that morality is out of control okay. as regards yes. him. But he's also complaining. He said, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't be surprised at this because nature is out of control. Look at the wadi. You, it dries out all summer. No one can grow crop, crops. If they ever do grow, the flood comes and washes them away. Look at the lightning when it strikes where it may. So actually, Job is continually talking about, about a God who isn't in control of it. This nature should be more ordered in the moral world as in the physical world. And I think that's why God starts saying, I want to think about creation. And, and it's as almost as if God says to Job, it's about freedom, actually. It's about, it's about sort of setting a creation free, people free. He, I think it, he, behind God's words, I think, is, look, is Job, I can make nature the ordered, safe place you want it to be. If you really want it, I can, it can be as safe as a stone, as ordered as a crystal, and every bit as dead. <laughs> if you want a universe that's living and worshipping and responding to me and alive and populated by rock badgers and stars, then you've got to let it go. Yeah. That's got to get a bit of wildness. And I think there's wisdom there. Yeah, right. Because he starts, Job, I mean, Job starts his lament with a cursing of, of the light of his birth. And so God, mm. God starts off with having to correct him about light. Right, so, anti-creation story. Yeah, yeah. He has to go back to the beginning and say, "Job, uh, where were you when I created the stars? All the, you know, all the the stars sang for joy. All the sons of God shouted for joy." Um, and and so it is a wonderful, poetic, redemptive, um, reconcil- reconciling poem. Uh, yes, reconciling Job uh, to God. Reconciling. Uh, one commentator I read said that uh, that that Job's desire to make sacrifices for his children was was also something that God had to correct. That 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 there was this intrinsic sense that Job earned his his uh, favor with God through through what he did, and God seems to also be correcting that to some degree. I don't know quite to what extent that is true or not, but it seems to be ultimately from what you're saying that God's desire with Job is reconcil- reconciling Job to himself and, and, and to nature. Uh, to, yeah. to have that, a, that reconciling to God happens and to himself happens through a therapeutic engagement with the unknown aspects of nature. Yeah. Yeah. Now what, 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 what could be more scientific than that? And actually, you know, this lovely tradition is taken up in the church fathers as well. There's this glorious passage in Gregory of Nyssa where um where he he's at his sister's deathbed she's macrina who's yeah you have this in the book it's in the book yeah there's it's in the book there we are yeah and these holy people um who who were involved in hammering out the doctrine of the trinity uh and and, and the creeds heal their own grief by having a discussion about the phases of the moon um and uh and and the noise that a bottle makes when water gurgles in, uh, when you hold it in, in a tank, it's just lovely. It's like a 
a, you know, a primary school, you know, grade school science, mm-hmm. little bit of fun, bit of play, like science play. Right. And it's therapeutic. And it's, it's a, it's one thing, David, I'm sure you see, um, as I've been a teacher and I'm sure you've seen it too, where, where sometimes your students questions will keep you in that childlike mode not in an immaturity sense, but in that sense of wonder, they ask such fresh and intriguing questions sometimes. Uh, and, and sometimes they're off track and you, they have nothing to do with what you're talking about, but then you end up thinking that's a really good question, Steve. Um, that's pretty good. Let's, let's talk about that. And then your, your lesson plans are shot and you have to rewrite your lesson plans for the rest of the week. But, but it's that childlike wonder, I think. And, and Tom seems to have it. Uh, he really does. It's very infectious. <laughs> Tom, I'm going to read both of your books now. <laughs> cool. And maybe if I can get you back for that new book that you just said, we can talk. Uh, yeah, with pleasure. Yeah, um, anytime. When did that come out? Uh, that was last year, 2019. Okay, I'm going to read it. That's my next project, and I'm calling you back. <laughs> and uh, when my launch at the Cambridge, Malcolm Guite came to with me on the launch oh, panel. Wonderful! And it wasn't that fabulous. Yeah, no, Malcolm for years and years and years. Malcolm is so good. But but Dave, talk a little bit about the importance of. Uh, um, we do have to wrap up here because I've got to go. I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I hate I'm to. I'm going to have to go. Um, to... But uh, Tom, if you have to go, why don't you wrap up with some closing thoughts for yourself about. Uh, about Jesus and science um, and about, uh, you know, this idea of love and not impersonal forces, that it's love, as yeah. Dante says, love that moves the sun and other stars, love that drives the scientific discipline. Yeah, uh, that's lovely. And I'm sorry, I will have to, have to go. Yes. I might leave I'll need you just, just to finish off. So, so, um, uh, so it, it, we're, we're called to love um, and God, you know, God clearly loves his his creation he looked at it and he saw that it was that it, that it was good um and uh god creates us but he creates it not all just for us he creates it beyond so the behemoth and the leviathan are parts of creation that god actually at one point of job is even more happy with even more delighted with than than human beings i mean it's a really edgy piece of joke but it it, it embodies this embodies in the bible this tension you were talking about before is is a human being small and insignificant or are we what the whole thing is about well the answer is neither um the, the, you know psalm 8 what is man, the human beings that are mindful to him the moon and stars that you've created and, and then leviathan is the we're only insignificant but look one of the great messages of the scriptures is size doesn't matter. Right. That's a trick, isn't it? Yeah. God looks beyond the surface. God doesn't think like we do. He's the apostle, isn't it? God looks into the heart, and so must we. And in our love of each other, we don't. We we are uh, instructed not to look on the value of people as human beings do but to look on people as God does and yeah. value them that way. In the same way, in other words, we are asked to, um, to look in um, uh, the words of Jethro's song, you know, the, the, the movie, the um, you know, Prince of Egypt. You know, yeah. It's this lovely song called Heaven's Eyes. Through Heaven's Eyes is how we are asked to look on each other, but we're also asked to have Heaven's Eyes looking on the world. And so it by looking by becoming christ-like and looking on people as jesus looks on people jesus was in with the father at the beginning of all creation we should also look uh, into creation as mm. as god looks and that's part of our science our science is an outworking of of uh of of a love 
that we exercise as little Christs in mm. the image mm. of God. That's probably how I... Well, that's great, Tom. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I'll be in touch with you again about um, talking to you about your new book. That looks fascinating. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, yes. guys. Thank you so much, Tom. See you later, Tom. See you later. Kind of a wrap-up topic here because, uh, you know, you pick up a book on science and the last thing a lot of people would expect to hear would be this, uh, the doctrine of repentance, which you do bring up. Um, you, you, and, and you weave it in there so wonderfully. It's a, a basically a change of mind. Uh, that Christians, non-Christians, Christian scientists, non-Christian scientists, uh, you give these wonderful examples of, you know, the Apostle Paul on Damascus Road going from a murderous Pharisee to a, a Christian evangelist and, uh, you know, messenger and the, the author of many of the, the letters in the New Testament. Uh, you have these these conceptual paradigm shifts, as Thomas Kuhn would call them, where the scientist's mind shifts uh, on a concept, on a new concept. And so there's this idea, I mean, even the planets turn, right? They turn from light to darkness all the time. So there's this idea of a constant, and, and as Tom finished up there, this, this idea of continually turning to Jesus so that we can see other people and creation through the eyes of Christ. But if we're constantly turning away from Jesus, uh, that's going to be impossible. We have to continually turn to Jesus, as, as the scriptures say, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that, I think that's what your book does so wonderfully. Whether you're, whether you're a, science, that's a scientist or a lay Christian, this idea of repentance and, and turning to Christ uh, to see the world the way it's supposed to see, and we're supposed to see it. Yeah, that's right. I think sometimes um, when Christianity is attacked by uh, somebody who we might say, is a fan of scientism. Mm. They they say, well, science is prepared to change its mind in the face of evidence, um, but but Christians don't do that. You know, they uh. they they're just signed up to this doctrine, and it doesn't matter what evidence is is thrown at them. Um, they they're not going to change their minds because they see it to be a virtue to just keep the same mindset all the time. Um, mm. Richard Dawkins says something along the lines of, you know, uh, they're dyed in the wool faith heads. Yeah. It's impossible for them to change their minds. Um, but then, of course, if they find a period in history where the church did change its position on something, they accuse mm. Christians of being flip floppers. <laughs> and you think, well, <laughs> hang on a second, you, you know, you can't meet the you can't meet their criteria. We can't. can't, we, can't we can't. Win. <laughs> but but I think that. Um, you know what we say in the book is that actually the experience of conversion to Christianity is the ultimate example of changing your mind in the face of evidence. Right. It's the right. it's the ultimate one um, because what happens is you become aware of something that you weren't aware of before, and you completely do a U turn. So, what is it that you become aware of? Well, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you become aware of your own desperate need for God. Mm. Uh, it could be a conviction of sin, right? It could be a sudden conviction of, wow, you know, I, I am, I have a black heart, or I, I have not lived a good life, or I did that thing, or, or I am not enough 
there's a sense of of not enoughness in right. your moral being, right? Right. Um, or it could be um, a a real sense of I have put my faith in the wrong thing. I've put all my faith in uh, my relationship with this person, or I've put all my faith in getting a promotion, or I've put all my faith in finding that house. Um, right. Whatever. I think the, uh, the, an example comes to mind of Buzz Aldrin. He put his entire life uh, and career on going to the moon. He accomplished that, came back and then really struggled with alcoholism because that was the biggest goal of his life. And his, he wanted to be the first guy on the moon. I mean, it was a successful mission, but now what do I do? You know, do I, do I go back to the moon? What, what's my, what's my purpose and career? And so you're saying uh, to, to be a good scientist, really, to, to be good at anything is, is to ultimately put your, your, your faith, your trust, your hope in Jesus, um, not in politics or, or money or success or how many people you, you can reach in this life or if you attain your goal in this lifetime. Um, we talked about Stephen Hawking last time. He certainly may have considered himself to have failed at his task of coming up with a theory of everything. Maybe he didn't. Uh, he certainly didn't see it come to fruition as much as he would probably have wanted to, but by no means was he a failure in terms of what he achieved as a scientist. Um, but, but our ultimate hope is in Christ Jesus as Christians, especially. Um, and though we struggle sometimes, um, that seems to be what drives the scientists that you guys, uh, you guys highlight in this book. Is there relentless faith in Christ and knowing that the universe is knowable and that they can persevere and, and endure, even if not everything that they hope to achieve in their lifetime comes to pass. Um, and so a remarkable book on uh, not only just about Jesus, about persevering, about uh, the intelligibility of our universe. I mean, this is, uh, it's written, you hit the target audience. It's written for a lay audience and you don't have to know anything about physics or science to know and appreciate this book, David. I thank you so much for taking more of your time to speak with me today. Yes, final thoughts uh, about science and Christianity. Well, my final thoughts are that really the science that we do, the modern science, the science that everybody recognizes as being science, um, is Christian science. It's built mm. on a set of Christian presuppositions about the world that mm. it was designed by somebody, that that somebody was rational, that that somebody cares about his creation, that that somebody has made us in his image, mm. that we have a chance at looking at the world and understanding it, that uh, we can know more about him, about the creator by looking at his creation. Mm. Those are the things that sit underneath the science that even the most atheistic scientist today is pursuing every day. Mm. When they go into their, their laboratory and they expect to find a relationship between two things, mm. they are using Christianity. They are you. They are drawing on Christian capital. They mm. are putting their faith in the Bible and what the Bible says about who we are and why we're here. Mm. But they are refusing to acknowledge the uh, the giver. They're refusing yeah. to acknowledge right. the foundation right. builder. And um, 
and what happens is that sometimes uh, they realise that, yeah, and they I change mean, their it... minds and they come to Christ, and mm-hmm. you can find them all over the place, all over the internet, and writing books. Right. I came to right. faith because I realised that my science needed God sitting underneath it. Yes, yes, we have a, a wonderful. I, you probably read Sarah's chapter in our book, uh, Sarah Salviander. She was an atheist studying astrophysics and uh, was walking across the campus one day and God gently touched her and said, there's no way the universe can be exist without a creator, Sarah. And it was a, it was a pivotal turn for her, not something that she was actually seeking, but a revelation very much like C.S. Lewis, um, kind of a, a slow, gradual, you know, point to where, how can there not be a God? And, and Sarah became a, a Christian and, uh, so a wonderful chapter in our book about black holes and Christianity and, and, and the natural man not being able to understand the things of the spirit. But it seems like the scientist without God is like Koheleth of Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher who has done all these things, all these wonderful accomplishments. I built gardens. I did this. I did that. I did this. But then it's without God. It's, it's a vanity and grasping after the wind in, in a certain sense. Um, but it, But I think even in the most secular scientific pursuits, David, your book reminds me that it is still striving towards a, a Christian reconciliation and redemption of, of creation. Yeah, I think it's similar to when we can celebrate something like charity work or a great act of bravery or self-sacrifice from somebody who is not a Christian. Mm. We can celebrate those things and we can say that by doing them, they are pointing towards uh, the character of God. And, yeah. they, and, and they're pointing towards the fact that they are made in God's image, right? Got it, yeah. Um, yeah. That a scientist plugging away to find unity and order in the universe or to cure cancer or to show that um, uh, humanity should be united, right, mm. um, in some way we can celebrate that and we can say what you're doing is a good thing. What you're doing is a good thing. What you're doing is what God calls people to do and, and, and pray that they then take the final step, the key step of realizing that the reason that the thing they're doing is good is that it came from God um, and, uh, and turning to him. Well, thank you, David, so much for your time once more. Um, You are co-author of Let There Be Science, Why God Loves Science and Science Needs God, co-authored with Tom McLeish. You guys have put together a great book. And if you are at all unfamiliar with the science-faith dialogue, this is a great place to start. Even if you are familiar with this dialogue, this is also a great reference because of the way you guys have carefully woven scripture in with the scientific truth and you show how masterfully it goes together but uh thank you so much david again for your time thanks for having me dan and god bless to you and your listeners good heavens is a production of watchman fellowship incorporated arlington texas 
For more information on this podcast or any of the other apologetic resources from Watchman Fellowship, visit watchman.org today. Be sure to check out the story of the cosmos, how the heavens declare the glory of God with chapters written by both Wayne and Dan. It is a comprehensive down-to-earth Christian defense of the cosmos featuring essays on how the heavens have influenced science, art, philosophy, history, and theology. The Story of the Cosmos is a wonderful addition to any bookshelf or coffee table. Filled with stunning images of the heavens, high-quality gloss paper, and in-depth essays, it can be a great gift for friends, family, and non-believers interested in the intersection of science, culture, and faith. For Watchman Fellowship, I'm Dave Mitchell.